Welcome to Looking Forward, where we speak with experts about marketplace and societal trends, and most importantly, how they might affect you. I'm Jeff Ostroff, the host of Looking Forward. If you're like me, you're fascinated by trends in the future. In fact, several years ago, that was one of the things I focused on in a book I wrote. Hi, everyone. Our guest today on Looking Forward is an expert in a field that I spent most of my first career in. It is the so-called graying of America and other developed nations around the world. In my case, it revolved around products, services, and programs needed by those over 50, and how to successfully communicate and market to these more mature adults. Nowadays, hey, I'm one of them. I'm happy to introduce our expert today. He's Paul Irving. Paul Irving is chairman of the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging, chairman of Encore.org, and distinguished scholar in residence at the University of Southern California's Leonard Davis School of Gerontology. Paul serves on many councils and advisory boards, including the National Academy of Medicine Commission for Healthy Longevity. He previously served as a participant in the 2015 White House Conference on Aging. Paul Irving is the author and editor of The Upside of Aging, How Long Life is Changing the World of Health, Work, Innovation, Policy, and Purpose. He's also a Wall Street Journal expert panelist and contributor to the Harvard Business Review, PBS Next Avenue, and Forbes. Paul speaks and writes about health, productivity, and purpose for older adults, investment, opportunity, and innovation in the longevity economy, and the changing culture of aging in America and the world. Hi, Paul. Welcome to Looking Forward. Thanks, Jeff. Pleasure to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. I'm so impressed by your background. I just read only a little bit of it to everybody because we don't have three hours for all the stuff <laughs> you're involved with, Paul. <laughs> Paul, you have an interesting background. So let me just say, I wonder if you could please share with our listeners just a little bit about your background and how and when you first became interested in aging. Sure. Well, well, I think, as you know, my, my background is as a lawyer. I was, a, I was one of those big firm lawyer types for years and years and years, for three, three plus decades. And, and after being CEO of my firm for a number of years and coming to the end of my term, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I could go back and, and do, do the work that I'd been doing for years, doing, doing something else. Kids were grown, same wife. Uh, <laughs> good. Uh, <laughs> a, a good time to kind of think about what might be next. And, um, and I, went, I was lucky enough to go off and do a fellowship at Harvard University for a year, really not knowing what it might lead to other than the notion that it might lead to, to something new and, and interesting. And I was very open. I came back uh, Jeff, you know I'm I, I'm at the Milken Institute now. One of the positions I, I have. I mean, originally, yeah. I came back and I became president of, of the institute. I really had no background in or really any interest in in aging or older adults. Obviously, I had had my experience with my grandparents and my and my parents and understood a little bit about the demography. I'd been interested in things like civil rights and civil liberties and legal, you know, legal access for, for others and, and, things, and things like that. I'd been involved in starting a school. But for some reason, I, I fell into a, into a project at the very beginning of my time in the Milton Institute. And I recognized that the world was changing 
Uh, and we think about that change as being climate change. We think about other kinds of, cha mm -hmm. of changes. But what, what I really hadn't understood up until then was the significance of the change in demography, the fact that longer lives were not only uh, a blessing of, of advancements in science, but were, were very much ahead and very low, historically low birth rates made the population just look that much different. And I said to myself, you know, I just don't think we're ready for this shift, this this demographic shift, this uh, reality that the world is going to look much older in the years to come. And as I got more and more interested in it, I got more and more excited and uh, and more involved in, in the field. And it kind of took me over, I guess. Yeah, well, we're certainly going to talk more about that. I must say, Paul, I remember when I was much more involved in the field that you are now involved in, I used to give presentations in the 80s and 90s, and I would tell the audience, you don't know what the weather's going to be like in 10 years, but I can guarantee you we're going to have an aging population over the next oh, you, 10 or 20 years. You were right. Yeah, I mean, we absolutely could predict it. And that's Absolutely. the way it's, it certainly turned out yeah. to be. And of course, by the way, it's it's important for, for your audience to understand this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. In fact, populations are aging much more rapidly in Europe and in Asia than, than in, in America. The the 60 plus population is going to about double across the world by mid-century. And again, at the same time, kids are having fewer and fewer babies. Uh, replacement rate is about 2.1 per couple. And people are having way fewer babies than that than that on, on average. So what this really means is all the institutions that were designed for a different demography really have to be reinvented. I agree. And we'll get into some of that, the global part of it, Paul, and also the birth rates declining and COVID. We'll, we'll get into that. Good. Now, you mentioned the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging. And I know you're also the head of Encore.org. I chair, I chair the Encore you board. chair the Encore program. Okay. Can you share with everybody a little bit about those two organizations, what they are involved with, what you do sure. there? Sure. Well, so again, two, two separate organizations. So, so the Center for the Future of Aging, which does applied research, it convenes, it, it engages in communications activities advocates and promotes and advances strategies, policies, practices to improve health, healthy longevity, to, to extend health spans, and to um, enable and encourage more opportunities and more possibilities for older adults. The reality is, you know and I know that Aging is the one thing we have in common, unlike race or gender or political belief or, or anything else. It really is the one thing that we all um, have, to, have to cope with. And interestingly, in many ways, science has done its part. Science has, through improvements in sanitation and the advent of antibiotics and a bunch of other advancements, basically doubled average lifespans in the last 150 years or so. For most of human history, people live you know, 20, 30 years. All of a sudden, people are living way longer. You know, the time that Social Security was enacted in the United States, average ages were just over 61 in the United States, average longevity lifespan. lifespan. Yeah. So I wouldn't be here. You know? <laughs> and right, I suspect right. you might not be either. So we have these extra years, but in many ways, we don't know what to do with them. Retirement needs to be reinvented. We need to keep people healthier longer, understanding the death rates remain consistent at 100%. We do more to compress what people in public health call mortality and mor morbidity. And in other words, the time in which we 
experience significant decline, loss of function, et cetera. So we're, we're really focused on trying to improve those things at the Milken Institute Center for the Future of Aging. Encore is very different. Encore has a, has a much more specific mission. And Encore's mission is to recognize that, uh, that older adults are the only growing natural resource we have in the world at this point, and that they can be used specifically for good by engaging them with young people to, to tackle social problems. So our objective with, with Encore is to say that we have these extra years, let's use them in purposeful, meaningful ways. And specifically, let's take on some of the great challenges that we all we know we all face, but let's let's do it not to not to be young, but to be there for those who are, to try to help the next generation and to use our wisdom and experience and know-how to try to leave a better world than we found it. I like the idea of the growing natural resource. I think that's wonderful. And uh, I also like the idea of trying to, if not do away with, somehow redefine retirement. I think that's absolutely needed. Now, one of the things that I really enjoy about what you're doing and what you wrote about in your book, Paul, is this notion, which would have been so foreign to me way back when, before I got involved in focusing on aging, which is the idea that there's an upside to aging. I wasn't thinking that that was a real positive thing to, you should excuse the expression with this podcast, to be looking forward to. But you and I, having learned this in the past, do see an upside to aging. So if you could please share with everybody, what do you see as some of the upsides of aging? You kind of alluded to that with Encore. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, and, and I'm glad you raised the question about defining what, what old is, because I, I suspect that some of your, your listeners are AARP members. You join AARP at 50. So in some ways, that's old. And at the same time, we have more centenarians, more people over 100 than we've ever had in human history. So, and aging is a, is a lifetime experience, right? We're all getting older from the, from the time we're, we're born. Look, I think, I think that what we recognize, let's, let's be realistic, and I don't want to be a Pollyanna about this. There are, there are difficulties with, it, with aging, phys, physical decline, aches and, aches and pains, uh, some, you know, sometimes the stresses of the loss of a spouse or the loss of friends or, or, or things like that. Those are difficult things to overcome. At the same time, what we know is, is that aging brings additional perspective, wis wisdom, and, and experience that can be applied in workplaces, can be applied in volunteering, is useful to families. We know in some cultures around the world, the notion of the wise elder is something that is respected and, and understood. The, the ability to bring all that experience to the table, to see across sectors and to understand problems in, in more in more complex and more full ways and therefore seek solutions in more in more full ways. So I think what we have to what we have to say to ourselves is yes, uh, aging is being bumped around a lot. Aging is having been through a lot, both good and bad. But all of that stuff comes to the table when we're dealing with challenges, when we're dealing with problems. If, if I can jump ahead for one second, just to give you one very, very specific example. So what we know is that we, we know tragically COVID has been the thing that, that has most threatened, most created risk for older adults in the United States. We know the, the rates of hospitalization and death much higher among older populations. But I actually wrote a piece 
fairly recently. Your, your, your listeners could take a look at it probably if they Googled my name and the words resilience or something. It was, it was on, on in PBS Next Avenue. I wrote about resilience and NIH. And the interesting uh, learning from this, and by the way, this is done by a number of academic institutions, Stanford, University of Georgia, several others, this year, actually in 2020. And what they found is, despite all the risks, despite all the heightened concerns about, about uh, what, what COVID could do if you, you were old, old people, older people found themselves more at ease, more calm, more resilient, more accepting of these risks and of the related risks of isolation, loneliness, and, and all the rest than young, than young people. It's, there's something about those years that is protective in many ways. And that enables us to survive in difficult times, probably because we've, again, we've been bumped around and we've experienced loss in the past. So, do, so don't count old people out. They bring a lot to the table. All of us bring a lot to the table. I'm going to be 69 soon. And, and I know that I can't uh, run or jump as, as fast as I, as fast or as high as I could when I was younger. And I have more trouble getting a good night's sleep. And yes, I do have aches and pains, but I also think in many ways I'm smarter than I was when I was 30 or 40. I have no doubt. And something that just occurred to me, Paul, based on what you said, last night, I will confess, I hate to say this to everybody, for the first time, 55 years of Super Bowls, I didn't watch one minute of the Super Bowl, but I thought I was turning it on to see the last few minutes. But anyway, I turned it on and they were presenting the trophy, the Lombardi trophy, and the coach of the Buccaneers said something about, my father told me, I don't know if you heard this, he said, my father told me years ago that if you want to be a winner, you want to succeed, you got to find somebody who's been there. And he was talking about Tom Brady, Tom Brady, right? Tom Brady. Yeah, But sure. I would say the same thing about older people. Part of this wisdom is because you've been there. Part of this resilience is I've seen these things before. It's not new to me. Right. So, so the, so the same things, there's been a lot of discussion, obviously, about, about Tom Brady, 43, right? If I, if I remember. 43. And, and so the same things that make Tom Brady able, and I bet his knees are not as good as his knees were when they were, when they were 25, but probably that's dramatically offset by the value of his, of his experience. That same, that same analysis, that same understanding can apply to people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and in some cases, 90s and beyond. We like, by the way, to believe, sadly, and, and it is a sad thing, that about a third of people, 80 plus in the United States, have Alzheimer's or some other form of dementia, maybe 50% do over, over 85. But that means that, that even over 85, half don't right? Yes. And even those who do bring something to, to the table. So we, we tend to undervalue exper experience. And some people talk about older workers or senior, senior citizen workers. Maybe if we talk more about experienced work, workers, we would start to understand the value that they bring to workplaces and civic institutions and various other things. Where you think about the fact that right now, probably the two most impactful people in the United States are Joe Biden, 78, and Tony Fauci, 80. <laughs> I love it. And you, you, know, yeah. you think about the fact that uh, to, who, who's got more energy than Tony Fauci at, at 80. Don't you appreciate the fact that he's been through so much in his career with his work in HIV and his work uh, in going all the way back? He brings a perspective and an understanding of public health that one couldn't possibly have if they were 
even really smart, but five years out of graduate school. I couldn't agree with you more. The other thing I want to say that I really like is, and you use the word Pollyannish. You're not trying to paint a super rosy picture here. There are older people who have severe disabilities, who have passed away, sadly, or gotten very ill from COVID, who are more vulnerable. Alzheimer's, we know about all those things. But as you're pointing out, there's the other half of the glass that's full, and that potential is there, and that potential is being activated, actualized by a lot of people. A lot of people. And, and again, I would say even for people who do suffer disease and decline, and ultimately, by the way, we all do. You know, I made, I made the point that, you know, we know what the end is and the end is coming for, for all of us. So all of us will, de will decline at some point in, very, in varying ways. You know, we think a lot about chronological age. We really should, in the wake of the decoding of the human genome, we should be thinking about biological age. And we, we, we biologically age in, in different ways. But even people who have severe disability in, in some cases can still live rewarding, productive, purposeful lives and the question for the rest of us is how do we create a society? How do we create infrastructure? How do we create institutions to enable that, to celebrate it, and to maximize the return, the benefit of age and, age and wisdom for all of us, not, not just for the individual, but for the greater society. So I think that's a challenge that we all have to look forward to in, in our country. In the same way we have to adapt to and address climate change, we need to think about population aging as this macro event or series of events, which changes everything. And it's very predictable. This is not speculation. Again. You, you, were, you, you mentioned uh, your, your prediction 20, 30, 40 years ago, and you were absolutely right. Yeah. All coming true. Looking forward as a podcast, in part is called that because we like to look at what's going to happen in the years ahead. Not 40 years ahead, but maybe five, let's say, or maybe 10. But to yep. do that, we'd like to take a step backwards. So, Paul, if you can speak to, over the last few decades, pre-COVID, we'll get into COVID, what do you see as having been some of the major developments that have occurred in aging in terms of how people are aging, how the aging are perceived? You're involved now, in a way, in the study of aging and how can we make the aging population a more vital contributor to society? How can that be done? So what would you say are some of the landmark changes over the last two or three decades? It's a mixed answer because, because I would tell you that there's a lot of possibility that's been created by, for example, by science. There's been less success than could be the case because of our own behaviors. You know, it's very much like what we're dealing with COVID, right? We, we get lectures, speaking of Tony Fauci, we get, we get his thoughtful lectures almost daily on, on complying with public health measures, right? And we still have people, very sadly, running around the United States without masks who aren't hand-washing and who were in sports bars hanging out with, with, with each other. And that, I think, is a, is a, sad, a sad lack of recognition of the reality of, of public health research. So in some respects, we have the same situation in the kind of question about healthy aging more, more generally. We've had successes in, in medicine and, and public health. I mean, probably in my lifetime, the three great successes, in addition to, by the way, I, number three is going gonna, is gonna to be vaccination for COVID. But 
probably the first two in my own life would be the polio vaccine. And I would say the, the national campaign, which is thankfully increasingly global to stop smoking. Right. We know that, that cigarettes are fundamentally rat poison. They're horrible for you in so many ways. And what we know is that advocacy proved smoking cessation and tobacco control, and that has saved uh, very likely million, millions of lives, improved cardiovascular function, improved pulmonary function, improved probably cognitive function, and a whole series of other things. Now, we haven't done as well, for example, on diet. What we know is we still have a some people would call it a, pan a pandemic of obesity in the United States, a product of the wrong food choices, of personal behaviors, and very importantly, lack of access to, to good food by in, in many communities, communities of color, underserved communities, et cetera, that are living what described as food deserts. And what we know is if we kept people thinner, if we kept people healthier uh, because of what they ate, if we kept them exercise, exercising, uh, that they would likely not only have longer lives, but very importantly, would have compressed, again, that time between mortality and morbidity, extended what we call their health span, the period of time in which age notwithstanding, chronological age notwithstanding, they remain healthy. So progress on that front. Uh, obviously, people, people get getting older, not as much progress as, as, there, as there could be. Uh, on the work front, more people are expressing an interest in working longer and being less interested in traditional retirement, both because they need to work for more money or because they want to work for additional stimulus and, cha and challenge. A challenge in that regard, which was a challenge a couple of decades ago, kind of using your reference, and is a challenge today is ageism, is still the belief that somehow as the hair goes gray, as the wrinkles be begin to appear, that you are simply less, that you are worth less as a human being, that you have less to, less to offer, and nothing could be further from the truth. But that's something that we have to fight. And I, there are a number of us who are concerned about that. You know, you go back to Maggie Kuhn and Gray, the Gray Panthers, a fantastic wow. woman yeah. who's now not with us, not as recognized as she should be, and I hope will be some, someday. But yes. somebody who would call it age, ageism and, and who saw ageism in the same way that people see racism, sexism, and other forms of, of bias. So that's something that, that needs to change. And ageism is the most ironicism in many ways, because aging is the one thing we all have in common. Age, ageism, it's, it's bias against our future selves. Think about that. Think about the fact that if we have negative attitudes about old people, we have neg negative attitudes about our own future. So all of us have a stake in tackling that. So I would say progress on, on the health front, progress on, on the work front, uh, new products and services for older adults, but still a long way to go. The other thing I'd say regarding this ageism and we're afraid of our own selves as we get older, it's because it seems as though until you get older, you don't realize that it's really not such a bad thing if you've taken care of yourself and if you have some plans for the future. What we continue to need, I guess, is more Tony Fauci's and the president and people who are those role models. We need lots of role models, and they are out there, who will change the younger person's attitude about, I'm going to be 60. Oh, my, I'm going to be 71. I'm like, it's kind of right. scary. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, there are lots of institutions across our society that have responsibility for that. Think, think about media. Think about uh -huh. Hollywood and, and kind of the traditional if you think of, of you know older roles, you'll you'll remember this. Uh, Granny from the Beverly Hillbillies, or or 
Walter Matthauer and Jack Lemmon and, grump, and grumpy old men. And yeah. now what you do is you fast forward to things, shows like on today, like Grace and Frankie, or like the Kaminsky Method, or like the movie that De Niro did, The Intern. Not, not, a, not a fantastic picture, yeah. but it made the point about an older person going back to work and then mentoring, in a sense, his boss. The, the young woman who's the CEO of the company. Uh, Best Exotic Mar Marigold Hotel, in which Judy Dench, living in, in India, mentors this group of young Indian kids who are working in a call center. I don't know if you remember, remember that scene. So, so the, the opportunity, I think, for the media world is to portray real images of, of older people with their complexities. Again, not uh, whitewashing, greywashing, greenwashing, or any other any other way in washing the challenges, the difficulties, the frustrations, but in painting uh, older characters as full people who enjoy experiences, who feel love and pain, and and who live the real complex lives that people live throughout their life. And as we've also said for many years now, happen to buy products too. <laughs> Right, uh, yeah. a, a, hu a huge portion of the of the wealth of not just this country but any any country of the world is concentrated in its older people and the opportunity we talk we call it the longevity economy but the opportunity for products and services and innovations that that address uh, their their needs is is an extraordinary opportunity. I, I speak to young people on campuses around the country and. I often say to say to them, if you want to go into a business today, don't go into, into a business of designing wheel carriages. Go into a business of designing walkers. Uh, the coolest walker in the in the world is is the thing that's going to get you rich. By the way, I, I just another, another example. You know, I'm, I'm, my my wife and I are the same are the same age, and yeah. and, and I I always say, you know, she's always like good bags and good shoes. <laughs> and like so many women her age, uh, the only difference is she's still she's she's got a refined sense of design, you know, that has been kind of cultivated and curated over over many decades. The only difference is is now the shoes have to be flats, right? Yeah. So that's what you have to think about. By the way, companies are doing that. I mean, Nike's got a new kind of interesting step-in shoe that it just released in the last in the last several weeks, focused on an older demographic. So it's it's changing. It's changing. And when we get near the end, we'll talk a little bit more about that topic of opportunities. The global population, particularly we're talking developed countries, do you look at how they are currently viewing their older people? You alluded earlier to the fact that like in Japanese society, the older people have typically been revered. Do you find that the ageism that we see that's still pervasive to a great extent here is also true elsewhere or is it a little different elsewhere? It's a little different, but I will tell you, sadly, even in Asia, even in some of the places where older older adults were historically venerated, some of that ageism has 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 sunk in, you know, it, populations are aging again much more rapidly in the European continent, in the UK. And basically throughout Asia, Asia and not just in Japan, in Japan, but in Korea and China and China and South Asia, all the ASEAN countries. So they're they're needing to deal with the issues, whether it's issues of care or issues of changing workforces or issues of investment in the longevity economy. They're 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 dealing with those things more immediately than we have in the United States. Part part of the reason why, by the way, why we've aged more slowly 
as a country has been our generally uh, relatively open immigration policies, which of course changed a lot. I'm, I'm going to steer away from politics, don't worry, but changed a lot in the last four years. And we'll see whether that shifts back. But there's a benefit, arguably, in at least at least thoughtful, if not aggressive, immigration policies. And that is that is to say that to retain population balance, you have to bring with low birth rates. You have to bring people in from other places to uh, supplement the workforce, fill expertise gaps and, and the like. I couldn't agree more. And I would say that if you talk about the long-term security of Social Security and Medicare, you need those younger people to be there as well. And immigration is certainly an important way to bring younger people into the country. Another point I just wanted to make, going back to something you said earlier with the media, the problem or the challenge, I shouldn't say problem, the challenge with the media, which I don't know has changed very much, but I don't follow it super closely, is most of the people who work in the media are young people. You're, and you're and so if we could have more older people involved with the media, these experts at living, living a long life, we might more readily change public perceptions about what it's like to grow older. My, my center did a report called The Power of Purposeful Aging a few years ago, which, which folks can find online. And in, in that, we have several data points that completely under, underscore your, your point. You're absolutely right. In, in television, in film, in advertising, in music, and frankly, in, in technology, social media, right? It's, it's a very young crowd. So one of the questions is, how can we do a better job as a society, and certainly as businesses, of mashing up uh, old, old and young. And part of the way we do that, very honestly, is if there's anybody out there listening who's, who's an HR person, is to ensure that age is included in the, in the diversity and inclusion matrix. So we, we spend a lot of time, as we should today, in companies talking about appropriate gender representation, racial, racial balance, uh, op openness to LGBTQ workers, and a, and a whole series of others. What we don't see as much is, is clarity about age diversity. It's not just, again, this one, I'm not going to be Pollyannish about at, at all. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's a necessary thing, thing to do. There's actually an emerging body of evidence that suggests that mixed age teams outperform same age teams of any age. And there's a logic to that, right? The logic is, imagine you've got a skunk works project. You're a, a big Silicon Valley company, and you're thinking about how to create something new for a broad audience. And your choice is, do you take two 28-year-old PhDs from, from Stanford and put them on the project? Or do you take two 65-year-old PhDs from Stanford and put them on the project? Or do you take one of each? Well, the answer is if you can get the risk-taking, creativity, energy, fearlessness of youth, experience, uh, wisdom, understanding how to navigate environments, understanding of corporate politics, understanding how to get things done of, of, of age, you're much more likely to not only create a great product, but create a product that actually works and a project that can get done. So to your broader point, the only way we're going to address those concerns, whether it's old people hanging out with, with themselves or young people hanging out with themselves, is to talk about, about age segregation and to address it. In the, in the environments in which we operate. Not only would it make good business sense to have the two generations in this case working together, but you've got an older person now who's contributing, which will probably help their health, which will also help 
keep healthcare costs down. And if they're contributing and they are earning money, that's also going to help the economy and maybe help it's, to bolster social security. It's, just- it's, 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 a, it's a, virtu- a virtuous cycle. And, and again, back to my point about, about resilience, one of the things that I wrote about in this piece recently is, is that we should think about using older adults to counsel and assist young people struggling through this time, whether it's because of the pressure of student loans or because of uncertainty about work prospects. All of this stuff has beneficial outcomes. So keeping the generations together, continuing work and and active engagement, finding purpose, reinforcing healthy behaviors, good for us, good for our families, good for our communities, good for the country, good for the world. Now, you've talked about this a little bit, Paul, so I want to ask you to elaborate so much on it, but what impact has COVID had on people over 55? that maybe might be different, other than I know we've talked about the death rates are higher or the number of people who are dying are higher amongst those who are 55, certainly in nursing homes, that's a big factor. How else are you seeing COVID impacting people over 55? What do you yeah, see? I Look, I, I think w- without belaboring the point about the, the specific disease risk, right? Hospitalization, serious, Ill, serious illness, death. I think probably the biggest challenge for, for older adults has been social isolation and loneliness, right? I mean, we, we know that we need to mask. We know that we need to stay at home. We know that if we get, if we get sick, we're very likely to have a higher risk of a, of a difficult outcome than, than somebody who's, who's younger and who certainly doesn't have any issues with frailty or functionality. So, so that, that's meant a lot of old people alone for a long, long period of time. And, and that loneliness and isolation, you know, before Theresa May left as, as Br- the British prime minister, she appointed, you may, you may know about this, she appointed the first minister of loneliness in the United Kingdom because they recognized, by the way, a country with an aging population, yeah. that loneliness is not just a, it's not just a state of mind. It, it actually has physical implications. Some, uh, some, some people say that, that the impacts of, of people who report as lonely as serious as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Wow. So addressing that loneliness through, uh, whether, it's, whether it's some kind of social media connection or telephone or other things or, uh, is, is just is so important. And I think that this has brought this question of, of isolation and loneliness to, to the fore. And I think it's going to be a continuing topic of, conf- of conversation. It's, it's, it's a significant health issue. It's not just a soft problem. As people get, get older, the, there's more and more of a risk. Again, things like loss of a spouse, right? Particularly a, a challenge for women who still live longer than men. Uh, loss of friends who move away, kids who've grown and who no longer live in the, in the same community. Some of the norms of our, of our age, of our society, of the way of the way we live today, unlike the way we lived generations ago, when people lived in family pods and they their kids were close to them, those things exacerbate the problem. I agree, and it seems like we always come back to this win-win-win type situation, Paul. Where one of the ways to counteract loneliness among older people who are mentally and/or physically capable is to keep those individuals involved in society, whether it be as a volunteer, a mentor, working, the more that people can be involved, the more that they feel they have a purpose, the greater the chances they won't feel so lonely. And, and the greater the chances that they'll be healthy. I've written a lot about, 
about purposeful age, aging. <clears throat> the research yes. on, on the impacts of people that find purpose is the growing body of research is, is mind-blowing. It literally is mind-blowing. There's a woman at Yale, Becca Levy, who heads the psych department at Yale, who's done this very interesting research on self-image and, and aging, mm. very much relate, related to purpose. And she's found people that have these positive feelings about aging, she controls in her own way and defines it. You know, she's an academic. Uh, finds that people, that people who have these characteristics live on average 7.5 years longer that's at least as significant a variable as body mass index, exercise, or or, or smoking. The Corporation of National and Community Service, which, which oversees AmeriCorps and also oversees Senior Corps and foster grandparents, has had research done on its volunteers, found that they report as significantly healthier than people do in the norm at that age. Uh, Johns Hopkins did research on a program actually that Encore started that, that's now run by AARP called Experience Corps, which is older adults in the, in the classroom, and they found really remarkable health impacts. So I often say that when you go to your doctor for, for your annual checkup and the doctor pokes and prods and asks you to pee in a cup and asks you to give a little, give a little blood and says, what are you eating? How are you exercising? The thing that the doctor doesn't say is, are you searching for and have you found your purpose? <laughs> yeah. and, and how is that, you know, how's your volunteering going? What are you doing to, to contribute to, to a better world? That might have more impact on, on health than anything else that doctor does. Yeah, and let's face it, going back to something you said earlier, for most people in prior generations, there wasn't really much to think about in terms of what do I do after 60 or 70 or 80? I'm not here anymore, right? right? That's right. That's now right. you now you got to think about your purpose because you might be around for 20, 30 or 40 more years. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary for most people to think about. You know, it's interesting in the life insurance business, uh, they used to say that the, that the principal risk was early death. Right, the that somebody would die before before their time. They had to make sure that they were that they took care of, of kids and spouses and, and the like. Today, the principal risk is unexpected life. It's it's people not preparing financially from from the standpoint of their health, from the standpoint of their work and engagement and social relationships and, and all the rest to prepare for what some people now describe as the hundred year life. A friend of mine who, who co-wrote a book in, in the UK last year, wrote a, wrote a book called the hundred year life. And we're, and we're headed in, in that direction. And so the point is, if you're thinking about beginning to cut down in your fifties and move to a retirement community where you're going to play shuffleboard and hang out on a nine hole golf course and sit by the pool all day. And you think about the prospect of doing that for 20 or 30 years, it encourages the possibility of doing things like going back to school, the importance of lifelong learning, of reskilling. It, it encourages the possibility of longer work life and new work for money or not. Yeah. It yeah. encourages the possibility of volunteering. It encourages new friendships, the importance of new, fr new friendships and putting yourself in a position through your involvements, whether it's church or temple or hanging out at your local university or whatever it is to meet new, new people. If you're not doing those things, the, the prospect for really enjoying those later years diminishes. So it's something we really have to reinvent. A couple of thoughts there. One is back in the day when I wrote my book, I remember talking about a trend that I saw in the future, and I called it career exit, career reentry. And I think we're seeing that, and we still need to see more thinking like that. 
not necessarily a 40 hour a week full tilt career, but just something new that you're pursuing. The other thing I want to say that I'm reminded of with what you said, Paul, was Mickey Mantle's famous line, if I would have known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. myself. That's exactly right. Mantle was right. He he didn't live to be 70, but you know, he realized that he kind of screwed things up too early in his life. He wasn't thinking he was going to be around. But yeah, that I mean, goes back to your life insurance example. None, none of us, none of us know what's in store. None of us are assured of, of longer lives. But if you look at averages, which is really all we can do, right? Yeah. That's that's why that's why somebody created actuaries. Then the possibility of 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 a longer life is is greater, really, than it's ever been. And science continues to innovate. I mean, new new research and new ideas and new solutions, really, really every day. So. Back to my earlier point, I said that I said that, that science is, is doing its part and social science has kind of failed. So while the scientists are in their labs thinking about ways that we can live healthier and longer, while they're developing new medications, while they're developing new procedures, I think it's incumbent on the rest of us to say, okay, they're they're giving us more time, the most valuable thing we have, more valuable than money or anything else. What are we going to do with it? They're giving it to us. What are we going to do with it? And it's not an easy answer, but I think it's an important exploration, an important search in a, in a sense that, that all of us uh, have the opportunity to go on. Yeah, and I really like the way that you've sort of bifurcated that. Medical science is doing this, but the social science part about it, they've given us this gift. What are we going to do about it? I really like that. It? Let's start looking forward, if you will, into the future over the next several years maybe the decade of the 20s, which started off in a very, very awful, rocky way. What do you think, and you can give us as educated a guess as just about anybody can, Paul, will change over those years because of COVID or not? It might have happened anyway. In the way people view aging, the way people who are over 55 and 60 plus live and perhaps even in terms of the products or services that we're going to see for those people. So let me, let me be hopeful because I, I, I hate, pure prediction can be naive, but let me, yeah. let me I, can, I can be hopeful and I'll try to be hopeful and realistic at the same time. So the World Health Organization called 2020 to 2030, the decade of healthy aging, A-G-E-I-N-G in the European spelling. And I serve on a National Academy of Medicine Commission on Healthy Longevity. So this decade specifically, this is just before COVID, this decade specifically was supposed to be a decade in which there would be way more attention on things like prevention and wellness, disease prevention and and wellness, uh, improvement of public public health, nutrition, exercise, some of these other things, purposeful living that, that we've talked about that would mean that people would both live longer and live happier and more, more fulfilled lives. I, I hope that in the wake of COVID, that, that we will pick that back up and that what we'll see is more recognition. You can't just treat disease. You have, you have to prepare for longer life. And that means both personal behaviors and, and again, policy and, and practice change. I hope, that, I hope that companies recognizing that they will 
run into talent shortages if they don't retain older workers will not only create a space for those older older workers, but will embrace them and recognize that new roles and responsibilities create not just potential for the older adults, but also for the companies themselves. I hope that universities will embrace the notion of lifelong learning. Half of the universities in America could be out of business if they don't change their operating models. And the way to change that operating model with a shrinking pool of young people is to expand the pool of, of old people. So I hope when you go onto a university campus 10 or 15 years from now and you walk around, you'll see just as many 60-somethings with a backpack as you do 19-year-olds. And I, and I think that there's a possibility of that. I, I hope that, that Hollywood and media will uh, will create more more stories about the complexities, challenges, and joys of longer lives and on older life. And I hope that uh, older people will both remain involved but will make a commitment to to a better future. I think most of us, and I think many, many, many of us, I think have kind of forgotten about this in the midst of our difficult politics. I think most of us grew up with parents who said something like, maybe said it in different ways, but something like, leave the world a better place than you found it. Yes. I'm hoping that in what really should be the purpose stage of life, the most meaningful part of life, you know, a famous economist one once talked about moving from a period of success to significance, mm. that, that what, what we'll recognize is that these later years in which we can marshal our experience and knowledge and wisdom, and maybe where we have a little bit of additional time, and maybe where it's not all about hustling for the next promotion or hustling for the next dollar, may, maybe what we'll do is recognize that this is the time where we can leave, leave a legacy and do something that may prove to be the most important work in our lives. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Yeah, well, let me just say, I'm glad that you're hopeful. I too am hopeful. I would also say it fits in very well, Paul, with the theme of looking forward, which is also a positive spin. I'm looking forward, right? It's not just the future, but I'm looking forward. That's right. And I would also say another word that came to my mind when you were speaking about that, is this not a time of contribution for us? Contributing, right? This yes. is a great time to contribute. Sir, look, I, I'm I'm an advocate of national service. So I, 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 you know, if you think about ways to prepare our divided country, and you look at institutions that do it successfully, interestingly, the military comes to mind. Where 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 oftentimes, you know, you'll have a rural kid from the south and an urban kid from the north, and you put them together, and they had completely different experiences. But guess what? They served with each other for a couple of years, and they learned something about each other. So I think I think um, national service would be a huge opportunity to create more weaving in our country to put to put us back together. And I like to see that national service available, not just to young people, but for old people as well. So so I, I think it's something that could for not not huge costs do a lot to heal America. I think that's excellent. You know, we, we've sent people to the sidelines, you know, you talked about Tom Brady before, I guess the New England Patriots may, maybe thought this, you, you send people to the sidelines sometimes well, well before the time in which they're still very much able to make a significant contribution. So whether it's retired teachers, retired doctors or nurses, or frankly, uh, service workers, caregivers, and a, and a whole group of others, all of us can make a contribution in our, in our own way for a long, long time. Let me go back to something you said earlier. What would you tell the college student or the recent grad about 
opportunities to serve our aging society. I would say sim- simply this, just if, if you don't believe me, I would say think, think about demography. A couple decades ago, somebody smart woke up and said more than 50% of our population is women. Maybe we should actually think about incorporating them in our workforce, and maybe we should think about designing product services and innovations that, uh, that serve their needs. Uh, some, somebody a couple decades ago said that the uh, Latinx, the Latino and Hispanic population in the United States, will end up being more than a quarter of our, of our population. Maybe we should think about creating products and services and innovation to serve their needs. Somebody woke up and said, and said after decades and, and millennia of, of ra- racism and exclusion, the African-American community represents not just a community filled with talent, but is a, a market, a community, a community that has needs to serve. Maybe we should serve them. Well, if I told you that all of those populations, as big as they were and as important as they are, and as much as I believe in them, were small in, compar- in comparison to the reality that everyone will be part of the aging population and therefore part of the longevity economy, would you think that maybe there's an opportunity for workforce shifts, for the design of new products to innovate for, the, for that group? So if you're creating a business as, as a young person and you're looking out and trying to build something that may last five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, don't you think you want to look at where the growth is and where the growth is, is, is in old people? Very well put. This is reminding me of what you were saying now of Wayne Gretzky. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't skate, skate to where the skate, puck is. Skate to where, where the puck is going. Okay. Absolutely. And All by right. the way, the puck in many ways is, is already there. It's already but, there. But, it's but, already yeah. There. But it's already there. But this is still a relatively, I was on the phone actually earlier today with, with, a, with a new new private equity fund focused on this. There are more and more venture capital funds focused on innovations around aging. There are more and more young technologists and uh, service providers focused on this, but it's still nascent. It's still, it's very, very new. So I, I would say, would I describe it as a ground floor opportunity? Yeah, it's very much ground floor with very, very significant opportunity. All right, people, you heard what Paul said. If you are a student or if you have a child or a grandchild who's a student, there's an opportunity out there. Absolutely. Paul, this has been great. You have a lot of wonderful things to share. Speaking of wisdom. Thank you, Joe. You're welcome. What's the best way for our listeners to find out more about the Broken Institute Center for the Future of Aging and Encore.org? I'll give you four ideas. One, go on the Milken Institute website and look for the Center uh, for the Future of Aging page, and it'll have all kinds of information about the programs and projects and um, and activities we're involved in. Encore.org, if you look up E-N-C-O-R-E dot O-R-G is the Encore website. You can follow me on, if you kind of look up Paul Irving Aging Milton, you'll see uh, articles I've, I've written and speeches I've made and all, and all the rest. And you can follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter, where I uh, post and tweet uh, every now and then when I have time about issues around, around aging. And I'd be happy to have your listeners be watching us. That would be great. Well, that's terrific. Let me just add Milken, M-I-L-K-E-N. That's People correct. aren't sure. And I think that you are a great representation and embodiment of the upside of aging. Here I am. I'm still doing it. <laughs> you're still doing it. You're, you're an ambassador for it. Paul, thank you so much. This has really been wonderful. It's been a pleasure. Thanks to you and thanks to all your listeners. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Looking Forward. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something. I also hope that you'll tell others about our show. If you have any comments or ideas for future episodes, please contact me at my website, jeff-ostroff.com. That's J-E-F-F-Ostroff, O-S-T-R-O-F-F.com. This is Jeff Ostroff inviting you to join us again next time on Looking Forward.